Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Merely by phrasing the question, do you have any questions? You've suggested they should have questions. Yet you delivered such a killer presentation that knocked them off their feet, that answered all of their questions, that covered all their preconcerned objections. You delivered said presentation. They haven't got any questions because you did it right. But you suggest, do you have any questions? They're thinking, well, I haven't got any questions, but I should have questions and I don't have questions. Therefore, I'm confused. Therefore, I'm lacking information. Therefore, I need more data. Therefore, I need more time to think about it. You may well have created the objection. Because you asked the question, do you have any questions? Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema is a fractional new business team for marketing agencies and B2B service companies. And that's a fancy way of saying that we go out to the market on behalf of our clients to tee up meetings and keep the pipeline full no matter what's going on on their end. We do this through a proprietary approach, which we call relationship sales at scale. What makes this different is that instead of going in cold, we secure relationships by identifying and tastefully reaching out to the sorts of prospects that are already likely to talk to our clients based on personal and business commonalities as well as existing relationships. So if you'd like to learn more about what we're up to and schedule a free consultation, you can do that by going to saleschema.com. Again, that's saleschema.com. So today on the show, I'm very excited to welcome Phil M. Jones According to his official bio, Phil is a master of influence and persuasion, the author of the best-selling Exactly book series with over 1 million copies sold, producer of the most listened to nonfiction audiobook of all time, a trusted advisor for some of the world's biggest brands, and an entrepreneur since the age of 14. So I was very excited to welcome Phil because I, I read uh, his book, Exactly What to Say, on a plane couple of years ago, and it definitely improved our sales process. And I love it because it's just a, a very straightforward, no BS human approach to optimizing your sales process through the interface that all of us are exchanging with every day, which is the words that we actually use. So if you're looking to up your sales game, you're going to get a lot out of this interview Or if you're skeptical, if you're one of those people that's like, I don't need sales coaching, I don't need a script, whatever, I'm not a salesperson, uh, I think you're going to get a good reframe with, with this interview. So without further ado, please give it up for Phil M. Jones. Phil, thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. And we were just chatting before I threw on the recorder about about sales and kind of your background a little bit. I was saying I'm a big fan of your book, Exactly What to Say, because I feel like so many sales books get caught up in in the conceptual, either overly conceptual or overly tactical and overly, you know, winning lottery ticket numbers. And I, I listened to Exactly What to Say on a plane and I was just saying, I think it probably increased our, our close rate by at least double digits over the course of a few months. So and it's and it's really just like getting into the human, getting into the idea of efficiency of word choices, which is something that you talk a lot about. So I want to get into all of that. Um, first, you have a really interesting background. Um, you have a story in your bio about starting by washing cars at age 14 that honestly, it reminded me of in a weird way, in a, like a very folksy way of the story of Tom Sawyer kind of convincing his friends to do his chores and then finally getting them to pay him for the pleasure of that. Not saying you did that, but it's sort of, it wasn't just like, quite that. It wasn't quite that, but it yeah. harkened back to that. So I'd love it if you could just talk for those that don't know you, if you talk a little bit, a bit about your background and yeah, maybe starting as a teenager, car washing cars and so on. 
football. Like like many of us in our teens, we had aspirations that outranked the money we had in our bank accounts without the ability to keep asking my parents to be able to spoonful the feed the next thing that I wanted to be able to achieve in my life, keeping up with friends who had parents with deeper pockets, et cetera, became harder and harder. So what I decided to do was to say, well, how about I try and make some money as opposed to just ask for some money and simply started knocking on the doors of my neighbors, asking them politely whether they wanted their cars washed. Some said yes. Uh, Many said no. Most just asked me how much I would charge, which I later realized meant they were kind of interested, providing my prices were reasonable. And I did okay with that little car cleaning business, so much so that by the age of 15, I wasn't going to school as often as I should. And I had a team of kids in the year below me that were helping to, to run the round. And we were, we were making really good money. And I built a number of good entrepreneurial businesses through my teens. Went from there to a senior leadership position at the age of 18 with one of the largest department store retail groups in the UK. Built up a fairly prolific name for myself in that environment from from turning around broken stores. Went from there to a big furniture retailer in the UK, again, taking on the same challenge of retail store that used to turn over 12, 15 million and dropped down to seven, eight. Had to get it back up to heyday numbers. Did that on repeat pretty quick. Went from there to the world of commercial sport, was head of retail, commercial director for two Premier League soccer clubs. Then went from there and built a overseas investment property business with a business partner that turned over 240 million at its peak. Sales team were just five. And that takes us to 2008, where the world got a little tricky for a second. We had a product that was killer on a Monday. We were about to go through a big buyout in terms of a merger acquisition. That was looking good on a Monday. By a Friday, the deal was done. We were no longer anywhere near as valuable as we thought we were. We bought that business down ethically, and I was wondering what to do, what to do, what to do, and started being invited to deliver seminars and trainings via small business networking events, chambers of commerce to say, hey, Phil, will you share some ideas as to how independent businesses can turn themselves around in these recessionary times? And I'd always trained and spoken all my other roles just for fun. So I started there. And from that point onwards now is I'm still figuring out what I want to do next, having written what now nine best-selling books, traveled the world, delivering speeches and seminars now to more than 2 million people, 59 countries, yada, yada, yada. So it's been a, it's been a ride. Yeah, I, I can imagine. So I think some of our listeners might hear that story and they're like, man, this, this guy's awesome. Like he's, he's killed it from a very young age. Like this guy's a natural born salesperson. What, what do you say to that? Do you believe in a natural born salesperson? How do you feel when people say that to you? I'm grateful for the question for starters. So thank you for that. Is what I am naturally is ridiculously curious, which I think is a, an unusual quality to show up within a sales professional is the typical belief of what a sales professional should be is to show up with high levels of certainty, high levels of confidence, high levels of drive, be that kind of go-getter. And my natural demeanor is, is very much being, if somebody else can do it, can somebody else be me? Which means whenever I've met anybody who's better at anything than I am, is I've never been, wow, I've asked the question, how? And that's shown up in my life on repeat, so much so that I can share it with you as concisely as I just have done right there, is... I was in senior leadership positions running sales teams where the majority of those teams were double my age from 19, 20, 21, 22 years of age. It's very hard to be at the command respect when the pre-prejudiced is this kid knows nothing. So what did I learn is I learned to be able to study the success of others and share the success of others in my leadership approach that it was never Phil telling anybody how to do anything. And my ignorance allowed me to be able to crowdsource brilliance at scale 
through realizing that there's never one way of doing something. There's multiple different ways of doing something. And if you can learn that from hundreds of different versions of Brilliant, you can share the right technique with the right people at the right time. The one through line, though, that I learned from all of that crowdsourcing was the commonality between anybody who was awesome as opposed to the pack that was good is anybody you ever met the level of awesome always knew that the worst time to think about the thing they're going to say is in the moment when they're saying it. They would master their word choices for critical conversations and they would find a way that whenever they were going to bump into any points of friction in their conversation, they would reverse engineer that so they'd get better for next time. They'd do it on repeat. And that was the stuff that I just have been insanely curious about forever is how do people reverse engineer conversion success in a way in which everybody wins. So was I born with the innate ability to sell? No. Did I share with you the highlights reel of my career? Yes. Are there as many downs as there have been ups? Probably more. Do we overcome adversity in all of those different stories? Heck yes. But the through line, I think, in terms of missing ingredients is is curiosity. And what curiosity will give you is the innate ability to believe that better is always possible. That's where if you look at anybody that is like, oh, they are a natural salesperson, well, they probably are, is innately curious, more so than that stereotypical version of what a great salesperson is. As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, How to Take Charge of Your Agency's Future Revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30-minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. Yeah, I really like that. I think that'll resonate with a lot of our audience that are dealing with complex things, right? And where there's lots of things to be learned and lots of, of chaos and, and, and things changing all the time. What, to do a little sidebar before we get into yes. word choice and in your books and your work, you said something, a really interesting phrase that I hadn't heard before, which is crowdsourcing brilliance. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, how did you think of it back then before you named it versus like, how do you go about crowdsourcing brilliance now? Like, what, who do you look at this stage in your career? How do you go about that process? Um, quite strategically is. We've grown up in a world, I'm looking at you here right now, I think we're not dissimilar in age, not dissimilar in terms of what we've gone on to be able to achieve in our own professional careers, where we've been surrounded by a quantity of of gurus, a quantity of so-called poster children that we should be looking up to as towards that these people have the answer and we are the peasants without said answer and one day we'll get laid into the secret. Uh, and that has been in abundance around our upbringing in terms of being entrepreneurs. I'm sure you'd agree that, you know, that we see enough of that. The mistake that I think people, many, many people make when looking to be able to make their next leap in their career is they think the brilliance they're looking for is held by any one given individual. 
They think if all I do is I study her, I study him, I spend time with her, I spend time with them, they are going to unlock this magic formula that's going to allow everything to become downhill. My approach to crowdsourcing brilliance is to look for role models on mass that allows me to create my own mythical Frankenstein's monster of a utopian version of future self that I can learn from that cannot be destroyed because fundamentally is not real because I made them up. And that saves me the disappointment of finding out that somebody I thought has the secret doesn't have the secret. I'll actively do that through working in mastermind groups, seeking out times with people who've achieved things that I'd like to achieve in my life, getting close enough to the center of decision-making on things that I don't understand so it can grow my level of understanding, spending time with people at the other end of the buying cycle. Like I do a lot of this in consulting work with clients is we get to help them understand better their value proposition, not from speaking to them, but by speaking to their customers, right? Is getting understanding of what makes those folks tick. So And the answers are typically always there if you're prepared to have the conversations with a few predetermined stakeholders that allow you to get whatever you're defining as the brilliance that you're looking for at that time. If you're brave enough to curate a squad of people that can talk into that, and then what you'd become is you become the fountain of that knowledge because you were smart enough to curate an orchestra of intelligence. Yeah, I I really love that. And I was nodding my head the whole time because it just sort of gels with, you know, a lot of learning that I've done this year, to be honest. I I think that this this past year, so much stuff got shaken up that there were so many gurus that I previously respected that have said things that have just done a 180 for me. And I've had to learn that lesson the hard way. I mean, I won't go negative publicly about, about any of them specifically, but there are people that, you know, I'm looking at books on my shelf right now. And I think completely differently about the authors based on things that they've said in this past year. Right there with you, right there with you. The number of of professional speakers, authors, writers that spoke about navigating the age of disruption, that then their marketplace gets disrupted and they run for the trees and say, it's not fair. I'm like, well, what's the last 20 years of your career been about sunshine? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I I completely get it. (laughs) Yeah. And also the the idea of sort of like finding, you know, a utopian version of yourself through, through stories. It reminds me of this book I was reading for a while back called Wanting by Luke Burgess. Have you read that one? I'm aware of it. I haven't read it or studied it. It's it's really good. It's about mimetic desire. And it's sort of like, you know, a stupid people's guide to Rene Girard, who was this uh, philosopher in the eighties, I guess at Stanford. So I'm not going to do it justice, but it's basically the idea of like, Mimetic desire, this idea that you want what other people want is like a gravitational force. Like you're not going to escape it. You know, it's just everywhere, but you get to choose the mimetic models that you have. So it sounds like you've sort of done that intuitively, which is, which is pretty interesting for sure to get away from that and get to stuff that people can hopefully use, use in their agencies and in their businesses and stuff. uh, I tend to get academic on the show. Um, I'd love it if you could talk about the the genesis for exactly what to say and kind of like what what inspired that, how you started thinking in terms of words. I guess we'll pick up on from what I said earlier is this studying and the success for other people is you would see recurring themes in their word tracks. Now, what then happened through my life is, is as I started developing as a trainer and a speaker, my training work would often focus and narrow in on just some very specific sequences of magic words. And they would be the Almost the you know the sprinkles on the top of the cupcake. 
in terms of a bigger training, a bigger body of work. They'd be the fun little takeaways that then become the sprinkles on the top of the cupcake at the, you know, in the end of a speech or littered through a speech. They then become the the potent version of the 20 minute watered down version of the speech that I was using to generate leads for training business, for consulting work, et cetera. It's always the takeaway what people wanted. We do consulting work with a lot of environments that were for sales skills for non-sales people. They didn't want theory. They didn't want work harder. They didn't want to be more persistent. They wanted, yeah, but what exactly do I say? That's what they wanted to be able to know. And it took me probably way too long to realize that what more people were actually looking for is just give me the words. And what almost everybody else on the planet tries to do is they want to teach you the principles for you to discover the words. And I just went, well, what if I approach this the other way around? What if I teach you the words so you understand the principles? See, exactly what to say is 23 sequences of words. It's disguised as saying that everything about conversational success is easy if you just use these 23 sequences of words. It's not really. It's 23 principles that are deeply linked to huge parts of neuroscience, giant studies around how people behave and what really impacts the influence within human psychology and behavior, disguised as 23 simple examples. And what I've learned is that if I give people the examples, they understand the principle don't have to teach the principle anymore because they're like, oh, I get it. Then they find their own examples. Then they find their application. So that's become my life's work onwards from there is how do I empower more people to understand what really moves people through giving them precise examples so they can create complex situations? And that's that's really where it started and evolved to. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. And to dig into that a bit, and I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but are there any examples that come up in your training business of things that people say incorrectly that if, if you just switch things up a little bit, could be a lot more effective? Is there anything that like comes to mind when I ask that question? I'll give you a quickest, easy one. And it, yeah. it's in the book too, but I know that you've got a lot of people listening here that, that own agencies and, and quite often they'll find themselves in a situation where they've got to either pitch an idea, they've got to pitch a solution. They're delivering a presentation that is, you know, here's our vision, here's our idea, here's our proposal, right? That happens a lot. And at the end of that proposal, what they often bump into is an objection that is somewhere along the lines of, I need some time to think about. That was then created. What else happens a lot, particularly in creative industries, is we deliver these Tada presentations and we finish the presentation with the question, do you have any questions? So you finish the presentation with a question, do you have any questions? And what you've just suggested to the other people that they should have is questions. Merely by phrasing the question, do you have any questions? You've suggested they should have questions. Yet you delivered such a killer presentation that knocked them off their feet, that answered all of their questions, that covered all their preconcerned objections. You delivered said presentation. They haven't got any questions because you did it right. But you suggest, do you have any questions? They're thinking, well, I haven't got any questions but I should have questions and I don't have questions. Therefore, I'm confused. Therefore, I'm lacking information. Therefore, I need more data. Therefore, I need more time to think about it. You may well have created the objection because you asked the question, do you have any questions? Look what happens when you make a tiny, simple swap. Instead of finishing the presentation with a question, do you have any questions? Swap the words to what questions do you have for me? Watch almost every group of buyers, the other side of that now say, oh, no questions which means they've got all the information they need to make a decision, which inevitably means they've already made a decision, which means you don't have to ask for the decision. You just lead them to the next step, which are the words. So the next step is 
right? And now you get to be able to lead the dance. But what happens in creative industries is we deliver these presentations, create these ta-da moments, and then abdicate all of the decision-making onto the other person, asking them to carry all the risk, when what they were really looking for you to do was to lead the dance. And I think quite often, particularly with mature agency businesses that have been invited into the conversation because people respect their counsel, because they respect their pedigree, because they respect the results they've achieved rather than the past, they're looking for you to lead the dance. And your failure to be able to do so could actually qualify you out of the opportunity rather than qualify you into the opportunity. And little tiny simple swaps in words can make all of that kind of difference. So summarize, swap. Do you have any questions to what questions do you have for me? And watch how it changes the end of a presentation conversation. Yeah, I think that's that's really powerful. And I've, I've definitely seen that and other things like that work work really well. To play devil's advocate a little bit, you know, for the people that are listening that haven't gone through sales training and don't take ownership over being in sales a lot of the time. How do you respond to those people? You know, the people that are like, well, that might work for certain offerings. Doesn't it's not going to work for me. We're a more consultative sort of business. You know, we have to deal with decision makers, like many of them in one big company or reputations matter. You know, a script really isn't going to work for our situation. Like how, how do you typically respond to that? I guess the same way that they're bringing up is differently depending upon each different set of circumstances. People say scripts don't work, but then they watch movies and cry and laugh and and feel the most emotional experiences. People say scripts don't work and find themselves in situations where some of the key moments have happened in some of the best productions of all time happened when people went off script. How did they get to go off script? Because there was an on script moment that allowed somebody the creative freedom to be able to break free from those constraints. Whereas if what happened, uh, the you know a Shakespeare performance is everybody said, let's figure it out and just go with the flow and see what might happen, that ain't going to be able to crystallize the performance. So I think scripts are important, but I think scripts are important when they're known, when they're performed, when they're written by themselves, i.e. you own it, you crafted it. And almost everybody that doesn't have scripts has copy and paste emails on their desktop. An email they've written to a client that 60, 70, 80% of it's the same every time. And rather than writing it from a black page, they copy the last one they read and wrote and then, then make the changes. Same is true in conversation. Right? Let's not pretend that every client scenario is completely unique. They're not. They often have more similarities than differences. And if you can model for the similarities, you can show up better for the differences. That's my belief. You understand the scripts for the parts that you can control, then actually you can show up to the moment better. You can show up to the conversation. You can purposefully go off script and you can come back with control. People want you to enter conversations like you've done this before, if you're an expert. And then when yeah. you show up like you're doing nothing, let's take the scenario of a chef in a kitchen. When a chef says, I'm going to make you something just for you, they are not making you something just for you. They are making you something that is inspired by the thousands of dishes that they've made previously that have been liked by people like you. So nothing is truly custom. Everything is an evolution of a past experience. And I think the acceptance of that is a gift. Now, what do I say when people say that, you know, it's not like this in our world? Is remember a very simple thing. Is prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. What do I mean by that? Is my dictionary definition of selling is that selling is earning the right to make a recommendation. What that means is that you should never, ever, 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 ever invite anybody to do anything unless you can say these words first. And the words I want you to say first are the words because of the fact that you said. Because of the fact that you said blank, blank, and blank, 
then for those reasons, my recommendation is blank, blank, and blank. So what is the consultation process? It is collecting the evidence to allow you to be able to say, because of the fact that you said the results you're looking to achieve are blank, 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 and blank, and not blank, 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 and blank, for those reasons, my recommendation with this next campaign is this. You can make that segue on repeat. You have to be skilled. You have to be artful. You have to be empathetic. You have to be understanding the needs of a variety of different stakeholders. But what you've got to do is to collect the evidence to support your recommendation. That's what selling really is. And it isn't embellishing products and services with features and benefits. It is earning the right to make a recommendation through collecting the evidence from asking great questions and being truly consultative. But that consultative questioning framework can still be a question tree, can still be structured. It can still follow a framework if you're brave enough to be able to actually engineer it. In the same way that any time that you as an agency take on board a creative project, you don't start with a blank sheet of paper. You have formulas, you have approaches, you have workflows, you have frameworks to be able to ensure that the right people are doing the right part at the right time so you can deliver the project on brief. Same is true in decision-making. You can utilize frameworks and then apply creative brilliance to those frameworks. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. I think the challenge that a lot of agencies have is that there's so many more variables that they're juggling, either because they're working with a bunch of different industries, they have a bunch of different services, they have different people doing different things, shuffling back and forth between fulfillment and sales, sometimes out of necessity because they're small, other times just because they haven't set things up the right way. So I, I know that you you were president at an agency, so I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that and just kind of like, how do you approach that problem of too many things going on? More often than not, when you're involved in delivering creative work, your job is to create boundaries because boundaries often don't exist. Now, an example might well be sometimes is you're fearful that they're going to you know, say no to your giant pitch for spending an obnoxious sum of money. Sometimes you have to create boundaries of saying, well, look, are you asking me to come up with the best that we can do for you? Or are you asking for us to come up with the best that we can do for you for 25 grand? Which one of the two is this? Because they're two different briefs. And putting those kind of boundaries in is helpful. Are you looking for us to be able to create something that is demonstrably different that might cause an edge versus competition? Or are you looking for us to produce something that is safe and stable that is going to allow us to be able to meet the market where it's at right now? But what are we always doing? We're setting boundaries. We're asking polarizing questions. We're getting people to be able to actually commit their side. And what too many agencies do is they take the monkey on their back to be able to achieve results that they don't control. Right. And clients are very happy to do it. And they're very happy to be able to actually roll the agency under the bus when the thing doesn't deliver the results that it may never have ever had the intention of being able to deliver. It's like, I spent 250 grand with ABC agency to achieve it. And all they did is create these funky visuals for us. Why? Because the briefs weren't well-defined. And I think so often the sales job within the agency world is getting clarity of objective at the start of any given project and clarity over the, is this worth it parameters before any creative work takes place. And sometimes there are a quantity of intangibles in that, but still spending the time on exploring what those intangible value props are, are essential in the discovery phase of, of, of speaking with clients so that you can measure success. We're talking about the sales part of, a, of an agency conversation. We're really talking about money. And the question is always going to come down to, is it worth it? And if you can't define the worth it criteria, in your sales conversations, you're hoping, wishing, and praying. Whereas if what you can do is get clarity over the what makes this worthwhile, what makes this successful to you, Mrs. Mr. Client, 
then you can go in with eyes wide open. Not having those conversations is what keeps you in a really awkward space that even when you win, you don't know why you won, which therefore makes it hard to repeat. Yeah, I think that a lot of our audience will, will be nodding their heads at that. And I think a lot of that's really great, but the challenge, the barrier people face is ensuring that they're talking to the right person, right? Because they might hit that that steel door, you know, between a brand manager and a CMO or whatever the situation might be. So I'd love it if you talk about that a little bit. Like, you know, yeah, it's the decision maker question. How are you building a champion and, and building trust and doing all the things you need to do while also making sure you're not wasting your time? Like, how do you get to that CMO or whoever it might be? It's, it's a big question, and the answers to it can be plentiful. I think if you're operating at the premium level of the business, trying to get through the front door into a new client is a dangerous, aggressive, ugly game. In that if you're looking to be able to show up with a killer script that can get you past the gatekeeper to get you a meeting with a decision maker for you to meet next Friday to make your fantastic pitch and leave with a new retainer client, you're in cloud cuckoo land. The door I look to try and get through or to help clients get through today is the side door. How do you find a way of getting through the side door to win the attention of key stakeholders within an organization? And more often than not, that is more than one person. How do you get the radar on those people is is typically death by a thousand cuts. If this is a relationship worth having, how do you do that? You do it with intelligent drip content on the right people. How do you do that? You do it with being brave enough to decide who the people are you're looking to be able to influence ahead of time. So you can follow their stuff. You can comment on their stuff. You can actually join their conversation, be impressed by their work. So they're more likely to be impressed by your work. What else can you do? You then work the who do they know that you know channel and look to be able to find ways to get introduced. Also, what you then do is when you enter into conversations with those people, you make it about the problems you can help them solve specifically, not hypothetically, and not the work that you do. What does that mean is I've heard through the grapevine that one of the things that you're looking to be able to do is to reinvent your brand right now because of the fact that you're missing out on a giant percentage of new customers in Gen Z. I wanted to share with you a study or a piece of work that we did to help an organization not too dissimilar to yours go through a similar transformation and thought I'd share with you some of the lessons that we created from it. Boom. Now you got to see at the table. Yeah. But it's not like, like the art of winning in a sales environment today isn't the Wolf of Wall Street BS. It is applying science, sophistication, grace, heart, care, and compassion. And it means as much as they've got to decide, are you worth it? You've got to decide, are they worth it? You know, are they worth the chase? Are they worth the investment of time, effort, and energy? Is the prize worth the approach? And that's what I'd do on the hunting side of things. On the farming side of things, well, I'd be ready to deal with all your critical conversations. Let me guess right now is how many of you as agency owners get people reach out to you asking you about your ability to help them with simple projects. And what they do is, you know, like they reach out and say, hey, I'm looking for your help to be able to redevelop our website. How much do you charge for a new website? And you find yourself like a turtle on your back squirming around saying a version of it depends or what's your budget? When what we should be able to do is to skillfully approach that conversation in a way to help them qualify whether they're talking to the right kind of vendor. Yeah, that's that's really good. And I like that because so many sales gurus, you know, will will give you really good ideas. 
but they don't have the constraint on resources and time in mind, right? So it's it's not curated in a way where it's like, here, okay, here's what you should probably do given your situation. If you're a full-time new business person and you do this all day, that's a different situation than if you are a partner that's splitting this with three yeah. other things. And it seems like you've addressed that pretty well. When it comes to winning new business, it's something I've learned from all the different industries that I've worked with, big sales teams, solo entrepreneurs, and everybody in between, is no human being on the planet can successfully prospect more than 18 people at any one period of time. 18 is like the magic capacity number that if you're looking to, with integrity, prospect opportunities towards a close, 18 is about all that the brain and the workflow can actually naturally manage to show up with integrity. Yeah. doesn't mean you can't work a bigger leads list. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a marketing funnel that's bigger than that. doesn't mean you shouldn't be putting drip content on people that's bigger than that. But your proactive approach to decisions that are going to move towards a close in new business, 18 relationships is the maximum that anybody can work. If you're looking to hype up your prospecting, here's what I would do before you get to tactics. Decide who are the people you're looking to try and influence. And I'd build a list of 18 people. What would the list be? It would be six big fish. What, you know, who are six big fish that I'd love to land that you know might have a slow sales cycle, might take 12, 18, 24, 36 months to be able to land, but I'm going after them because I care about what my business is going to look like in a decade. So they're on the roadmap. Mm-hmm. I want six core business. What am I really in the business of doing? That might be, I'm in the business of taking people through a rebrand, web transformation, et cetera. You know, sweet spot, industry very much your bread and butter business. Who are six in that camp that they're going to uh, keep the wheels ticking over, allow me to employ my team, pay my mortgage, yada, yada, yada. And then I'd put six that are in the low-hanging fruit category. Who are the people that I can bump into today that I can transact in next week that allow me to keep the flywheel turning? Because quite often, small business leads to big business. Right. Like those little tiny projects of, hey, can you help me with a poster design? Can you help me with a landing page for blank? Can you help me with a tiny piece of creative about whatever? For the right people, those are the bait to catch the prize later down the track. But I'd be prospecting in each of those camps. And all I'd be asking myself in each of those camps with the 18 people identified, what is my next play? My next play might be, well, I'm going to said conference at that point in time. I'm going to find out if they're going. I'm going to see if I can meet them at the bar and buy them a cocktail. What might my next play be? They just wrote a really good piece of thought leadership, or I listened to them on a podcast. I'm going to send them a note and say, hey, hey, great job. What might my next play be? Well, I just found a really cool piece of research that I think would be useful to them. What might my next play be? Well, I tell you what, I'm going to create a really intelligent piece of direct mail that I'm going to land on the lap. What might my next play be? Well, is I'm going to see who else in that organization that we can grow our foothold and our stakeholder print through. And providing you've got a next play, they're on your list. No next play, get them off your list, bring somebody else into play. And when I work with teams this tactically with that overarching strategy, they keep a very buoyant pipeline of new opportunities because they've narrowed the gaze. Yet so many agencies are like, we can work with anybody and everybody. And they're looking at this attraction marketing strategy by itself and missing what the ingredients are that create the attraction. And sometimes the attraction is you're being pursued. Right. And that's, that's what we see a lot too. And like, you, you know, we'll talk to clients and they'll tell us that we've built 90% of our business from our networks and from referrals and that kind of thing. And then our whole thinking is like, why not just go the next layer out and find the people that they know that are also in these accounts that you right. want to do business with. And purposefully yeah. accelerate word of mouth. Right. Like we're all in agreement. The word of mouth is the only way to go, but I tell you word of mouth with gasoline on it is better. 
yeah, word of mouth amplified, the creation of tools that allow your word of mouth ambassadors to deliver the word of mouth outcomes that you're looking for, don't just leave it a chance. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like we're approaching it from different angles, but same same idea, which is doing this stuff in, in, a, in a deliberate way. Tied to that, hiring and, and sales training. We just went through a big sales hire here. It was actually successful. We hired somebody really good. They closed a good amount of business for us, sadly left us to pursue their own entrepreneurial opportunity, kind of like unrelated to our yep. business, um, yep. which was disappointing, but you know, nothing we could have done differently there, I don't think. So I, I love to, to hear your thoughts on that. Like when you're in the context of, let's say, B2B services, agency stuff, when does it make sense to get out of that sales seat if you're an owner? And what are you looking for in, in that role if you're, if you're working with clients? This is a puzzle that is nigh on impossible to try and solve. You know, quite often when you're selling a creative service or when you're selling a solutions-based offering, a giant part of the value exchange is how you individually see the world or how your creative director sees the world or like, like to try and translate that value prop to somebody brand new that is stepping into the organization and expect them to be able to get anywhere near the same kind of results that you can have as an owner, leader, founder, et cetera, it is bordering on impossible. If you're looking to be able to bring salespeople into your organization, that there are two ways that I'd look to be able to do it. One is, organically cheating people into the role, i.e. bringing them into a client services type role, bringing them into an account management type role, bringing them into something where they're not seeing themselves as income generators, but in support of the sales that are then created. And then naturally guiding them into, well, why don't you take this one? And actually giving them the ownership of maybe some of those lower stakes projects to go and meet without your help, et cetera, and organically grow them into that role. What you end up with is somebody who's fundamentally more valuable towards your agency, plus insanely more loyal. Uh, that's interesting. I push back a little, and there's there's a good chance that you're right, because there's people that I respect a lot that agree with you. I think Drew McClellan in the agency space is one of them. I guess the, the pushback I have is when you look out, you know, we're both in Manhattan, I think, you look out at the skyline and there's tons of uh, complex service businesses. There's the Deloitte's yep. of the world. Yep. P, they've scaled the massive proportions by essentially hiring and training salespeople. So how do you feel about that? Like, what have they done differently? And how what they've done is they've created a brand name that is very easily purchasable by somebody who doesn't want to take risk. So if if you're going to go through a period of change and you decide to bring on one of these brand name consultancy firms to help you be able to navigate it, you are then hedging your bets on, this really safe choice that you're probably not going to get fired for. Yeah. So it's the modern day equivalent of nobody got fired for hiring IBM, you know, installing IBM computers. So I don't think the comparison between those two things is fair. Not only that is they have infrastructure to support that hiring experience at scale. What else they have is they have a boiler room of egos. So what happens when you create a boiler room full of egos where you've got 20, 30, 50, you know, highly driven individuals joining just out of college into those kind of environments, the cream will rise to the top. The hungry ones will find a way to win. They'll find a way of being able to crowdsource brilliance, learn from others, et cetera. And the business can afford that kind of growth, wastage, saturation, and they've got infrastructure to be able to support that. If you are a smaller business where you can only hire two people at a time, you don't get the comparison. I often say that if you're going to hire salespeople, try and hire five at once. And you'll get your two. 
But if you've got two vacancies and you hire two people, then what will happen is they'll actually drop to the to the behavioral style of the of the worst of the two. Yeah, I agree with that mostly. It sounds like if you can create a demand engine for your services where you you're slotting Compet- salespeople. Competition yeah. within peers. The competition right. has to exist within its within the same peer group to allow that to happen, which means you need a quantity of peeps to be able to be able to do it. Yeah. Let, let, let's take the other thing that exists for many of your agency owners is it is a complex sale, does require experience. Part of the thing that you're going to bring to many of those conversations is knowledge and understanding of similar scenarios you've been in in the past. You bring somebody in brand new, what they got. You might be able to get appointment setters. You might be able to hire people that can create opportunity or can identify prospects or can farm for opportunity, but they're going to have to hand that baton over still fairly early in the sales process to be truly effective. You've got to build comp plans that are true to that too. And this is how you often burn people out because actually the comp plan isn't aligned to the part of the sales process that that person is fundamentally responsible for. So you're paying them a percentage of business booked, or you're paying them on a percentage of, of, of close sale of that value or growth of that account over a period of time. And that wasn't the job that they were paid to do. So they get cheesed off and they leave. As a small business, this is a real hot topic is the effort and energy you have to put into growing somebody into a business development role is costly, not only in the cost of the hire, but the cost of the redirected effort of self. And that second one is probably significantly bigger. So unless I was looking at recruiting somebody that I had the belief that would be with me for three to five years minimum, I probably wouldn't burn the effort, which is why I'd rather get somebody earlier in the journey and invest more time in them to get them to a position of being overpaid quickly. I'd rather bring somebody in that had aspirations of earning $55,000 and have them earning one twenty within 18 months. They can never leave. Yeah, no, no, that that I agree with a lot more. And, and I think that there's also something that I have, I, I won't say is broken or wrong, but I just am skeptical about, which is that classic BDR model, right? Where you're going to get this wet behind the ears salesperson that's going to get you meetings with some hard to reach person. It definitely doesn't work in the agency works. space. I don't even think it works in the software space that much anymore. <laughs> there's too much of it in the world, right? There's a lot of noise to cut through. If my LinkedIn inbox is anywhere near similar to anybody else's on the planet, like we've just spot swapped spam phone calls with gatekeepers with how do I spam people in every other way possible with a list of promises that I'm not interested in. So a point that if an inbound message from a stranger doesn't accompany me with a known name of how they know me through within the first line of the email, they're gone already. Exactly. Yeah. Just think a little more historically. I always like to think, you know, how much have things has things really changed when it comes to sales training? Like if you were teaching what you teach now, let's say you were born a lot earlier and you're teaching this in the 60s or 70s, you know, how would things be different if at all? Fundamentally, the similarities always are outweigh the differences, but the nuance of what the market provides is always something you need to have a lens on. So if I was to teach sales training, I, I talk about just six, six stages. First stage is being properly prepared. What does properly prepared mean in 2022? It means different than what properly prepared mean in 2008. 2008 meant clean your car. 2022 might mean, well, figure out your freaking Zoom background, make sure you've got Wi-Fi plus other list of other like plethora, right? 
you know, what goes into being properly prepared is different today, but it is the one area of the sales process you can be in complete control of. So intelligent research, what can be done to be able to understand who knows who, being aware of who they've bought from in the past in these different areas so you can be comparable to something that is, is true. Preparation is key. Second thing that then needs to be happening is that people do business with those they know, like, and trust, right? That's not going to change. So the building of rapport is evergreen. How do you build rapport? Well, that was different 20 years ago than what it is today. But the fundamentals are the same. People do business with those that they know, like, and trust. People think the most important kicker there is trust, yet the trouble is, is people trust too many people. So the true kicker is actually like, because from an agency point of view, I could trust five agencies to do a pretty darn good job, but I'm going to pick the one I like. I'm going to put five in the room that I trust, but I'm going to pick the one I like. So the work that can be put into like in terms of shared interest, mixing in the same kind of circles, sharing the same kind of values might allow you to win. Okay, we've gone from saying we're properly prepared, we've built rapport. Well, what do we then need to do? Well, we then need to be able to truly qualify. Qualifying is a skill that is not very well taught. Like people are taught scripts and frameworks straight out of the block, whether what they should be taught is how to be able to write a question tree to determine a genuine opportunity before anybody starts pitching. You know, you have to have the muscle of having a difficult conversation with somebody and telling somebody they're not a fit, which I think is awkward to lots of people. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's awkward, but if your if your framework and your cadence is right, they should see for themselves. Right. Let me just give you a real simple things, right? I'm a I'm a paid professional speaker as part of what it is that I do for a living. I get a lot of inquiries from people who are not a good fit. Look at our question tree makes life a little bit easier. Inquiry comes in. I say, what is it about me and my work that makes you think I'm a good fit for your event? Zip. They do the work of selling. Well, you know, I saw you at this last event. We've been running events for years. Last year, we booked this person. You're like, okay, great. Job's done. Well, I was browsing Google. We're thinking about running our first event. and We stumbled across your profile. I thought you might be somebody recommended to the board. Different context. What is your experience of working with a paid professional speaker? Qualifying question gains me a lot of context. One question helps me like cue jump the sales process by a mile. But you see how that same thing could be dealt with from an agency. Inquiry comes in. What is it about us and our work that makes you think we might be a good fit for your project? Zip. Let them do the selling for you. What is your experience of working with a, uh, a premium agency to go through a brand transformation? Well, last time we hired somebody on Fiverr, they did three great logos. We picked our favorite. <laughs> you now know that you're dealing with somebody who isn't experienced in buying your level of service. So you get to be able to say things like, well, look, uh, you know, would it help if I walked you through the different types of agencies that are available and help you be able to actually position yourself with the right kind of partner for the project? Yeah, I guess it would. Well, what there are is premium boutique agencies at one end. Let's call these level 10 agencies. What there are is freelancers down at the other end. Let's call them level ones. These are people that have just come out of college looking to do a side hustle. Then there are level three agencies that perhaps have a small amount of creative resource, looking to have three, four, five retainer-based clients be their outsourced marketing department, right? Where we are right now, we see ourselves as a level seven, level eight towards that boutique major brand that works on projects that are between $100,000 and $250,000, what kind of agency do you think you might be looking for? Yeah. I think we're looking for more like a, you know, a, a freelance marketing partner. Or would it help if I introduced you to a couple of people who might be a good fit for you? Yeah, it would. That's integrity through qualification. But also the job of operating at any premium end of the market is to educate your customers on the market, not just your place in the market. And I think people miss that when they operate a premium end to market is you will get leads and inquiries from people who aren't a fit for you most of the time. 
that is going to be the majority of your inbound inquiries. So instead of being like, how do I find more perfect? Say, well, how do I take responsibility for educating the market as to where different people are fit and celebrate people when they're buying at that lower end? That's how you maintain premium position. Yeah, I love that concept, integrity through qualification. That's really great. And you talked about being properly prepared, no like and trust, emphasis on like, yeah. Rapport, qualification, that's the bulk of the job. Yeah, and that's timeless. That stuff that's never changed. Yeah. And then you've got to deliver a great presentation. That's the skill. There's work, effort, energy to put into that. That's never going to change. That presentation could be 30 seconds in conversation. It could be a two-day tender process, but it's a muscle that you need to flex. Behind that, you've got to learn how to close. And what you need to learn is a multiple different set of tools that can allow you to close. So you can pick the right tool at the right time. Or when they don't say yes with the first ask, you've got three, four, five other ways of being able to ask the same question. And the thing that, again, will never change is you're always hit points of friction. You'll always hit points of indecision. You've got to learn the skills to be able to overcome indecision so that actually you can have meaningful discussions with maybes. That's what I think will always be true from a sales training point of view. But the tactics to apply to that, yeah, they're always going to change. Because the market decides. Yeah, that, that's really great. I'm sure we could do a whole other episode on <laughs> getting getting over that friction, and I hope we will. But kind of getting towards the end of our time, Phil, one question I like to ask is just like, what are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about quality starting to be able to beat quantity again, just in every marketplace. I'm seeing it everywhere. Is We've gone from the world got insanely smaller through growth of the internet, people being able to expand their reach in a bigger way, everybody deciding that their market went from this big to this big. And by everybody, I mean everybody. And now all of a sudden, that's all filled up again. So we live in a world again where people are looking for you know, right solution for right problem. People are looking to be able to put value back on quality of service as opposed to price or quantity or access to service. And I'm so optimistic about that everywhere because it fuels creativity. We're seeing it in restaurant industry. You're seeing it in innovation through how people provide services through what was forced through pandemic and people getting hyper-local again. You're seeing people value it in the creative industries like agencies. You're seeing it in speaker, trainer, author world. It isn't like, hey, great, they've got a book I need to buy. It's like, is it a freaking good book? Is this going to be helpful? I don't need to read another book. I need to read the right, you know, read the next best book. So this emphasis on quality overreach, I think is a really exciting time to be alive. And I think we're going to see examples of brilliance in every given industry because the constraints are back on that it isn't how wide can I reach, it's how good can I be. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good way to put it. And, and I, I think and I hope that our business is sliding into that in some way when it comes to our space. And it sounds like you are with well, yours. I love as well. what you're doing, right? Yeah. Is it everybody's grown up in like this world of how do we, you know, how do we get more content out towards people and how do we show up with you know, more prospecting tools and how do we, you know, how do we, you know, just write that 23 email sequence towards people and, you know, and it's more, 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 more. I love that what you're doing is, is producing tools that combine humanity and technology and actually take responsibility that says we do want to operate a scale, but we also want to operate with sincerity. Even the fact that you are, partially solving that puzzle and working to be able to solve that puzzle even better. That's inspiring. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. And, and likewise for, for everything you're doing and for kind of like approaching this in a very genuine and high integrity angle, which is, which is rare in this, the sales training space, let's say. So I appreciate that as well. And Phil, how can people follow what you're up to and, and get in touch and all that good stuff? Cool website is philmjones.com. 
come land there and you can find all sorts of different ways to access me. If you want to continue the conversation, the two social platforms I'm most active on are both Instagram, where I'm at Phil M. Jones UK, and on LinkedIn, come ping me a message, connection request there, search Phil space M space Jones, and you should be able to find me on either of those two locations. Would love to hear from you. I love the agency business. And if you want to tell me what you are like best in world at from an agency point of view, is that helps me perhaps open doors for you when I bump into clients that have needs. It's like, where is your sweet spot where you are undeniably in a marketplace of one? Let me know that. And I'd love to have that on my radar about you and your business. Might mean I can pass you some opportunities when the time presents itself. Awesome. Yeah, we'll be sure to get all that linked up. That sounds like a, like a really solid opportunity. Uh, let's do it again, Phil. Really appreciate it. Likewise, be well. Maybe see you in real life in Manhattan at some point. Yeah, yeah, right down the street. So that sounds good. Exactly. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.